When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk to the Iowa bird chaser, Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 203. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in this week. Got a great show coming up for you. A little pheasant hunting conversation with Nick Martin, the Iowa bird chaser. We'll get to that conversation in just a bit. As always, I want to thank the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast, listeners out there that have opted to make voluntary contributions to the show. They do so by going to patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Sign up there. Starts at five bucks a month. You'll get access to some bonus episodes, discounts on Upland Institute and Gumleaf USA, the Patreon monthly giveaways, and I'll send you some Birdshot Podcast canned coolers and stickers as a thank you and welcome gift. Speaking of bonus episodes, just this week we had another one go up. Once again, I teamed up with Nick Adair of the Gundog at Yourself podcast for episode four of the series we have for now titled BSing with GDIY. little play on the show titles there. Nick and I caught up, talked a good bit of grouse hunting, and being that it is a video podcast of sorts, this time we tried something new and shared a couple of GoPro clips that we had selected and played, kind of talked about what played out in the clips, and this time around they were somewhat comical in nature, involving either missed birds or missed opportunities, something we've been talking about trying for a while and probably will do more of in the future so for those patreon patrons out there feel free to check that out you can see that at patreon.com forward slash birdshot 
Don't forget, you can always leave a rating or review of the show, subscribe, follow the show, share an episode, tell a friend, little things that go a long way in helping out the Birdshot podcast. Appreciate all of you out there listening and supporting the show in whatever way you choose to do so. And with this episode being the last episode in 2022, we are closing out the year here on the Birdshot Podcast, the first complete year of the Birdshot Podcast after having rebranded the show and taken over complete control of it. It's been a great year for me and the Birdshot Podcast. Hope all of you out there have enjoyed listening and with your continued listenership and support we're looking forward to 2023 here on the birdshot podcast we've got some fun things ahead and we hope you'll stick with us into the new year and with that said i'll just quickly wish all of you a happy new year hope you've all been taking it easy find some time to relax and reflect upon 2022 as we all brace to ring in the new year i wish i was headed out hunting this weekend i'm not sure that will happen but i can assure you i will be outside somewhere with the dogs at least enjoying the balmy 30 degree temperatures that we now have relative to the sub-zero arctic blast many people experienced about a week ago so get out there and enjoy it while you can and we will jump into our conversation today with nick martin the iowa bird chaser as you may know him on social media or youtube nick is an iowa based upland bird hunter on a mission to bag a rooster in all 99 counties in Iowa. Started with an idea in year one. He's now in year three and has quickly realized it was perhaps a bit of a bigger undertaking than he originally thought. But as you'll learn in today's conversation, Nick has embraced the challenge wholeheartedly and is having a lot of fun doing it through the highs and the lows. I really enjoy catching up with Nick. And as tends to happen around the fall, the podcast is pretty rough grouse heavy. It always is. I certainly... Don't shy away from that, and no doubt listeners of the show will know that, but I felt a little bit neglectful of another very popular and favorite upland bird out there, the ringneck pheasant. I haven't had a lot of pheasant conversation on the podcast this fall, so I'm trying to sprinkle some of that in, and we certainly did so today with Nick Martin. I just want to note that Nick and I conducted this interview over two days because we were interrupted by a repair man that I had sent out to my house. So right at about halfway through the episode where I have inserted the mid-roll ads will be the split in this conversation. And it's pretty continuous throughout. However, you will notice that when we break for those mid-roll ads and come back, it is two days after the first part of the conversation. And coincidentally, Nick had just finished his first hunt of the day when we picked up the conversation on the post side of that break. So we dive right into some post-hunt conversation and continue the interview from there. So now you know, sit back and enjoy. Happy New Year, everybody. And with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, the Iowa Bird Chaser, Nick Martin. Yesterday was the first time we broke... 10 degree, you know, double digit temps above zero in however many days. And there was no wind. The sun was shining. 
I mean, I could have been walk. I took the dogs out for our exercise run. I could have been out there in a short shorts and t-shirt. It just was, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and snowshoes. <laughs> oh, that's great. That would have been a picture. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been funny. I did hit record on you, Nick. So we are rolling on the birdshot podcast and I want to thank you for taking some time to join us today. You've got plans this afternoon to get out and do some hunting. So we're going to jump right into it and we won't keep you from chasing birds this afternoon, but introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and a little bit about yourself, Nick. Yes. My name is Nick Martin. Go by the uh, name Iowa bird chaser on the social media handles. I'm out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and pretty much a lifelong bird hunter growing up and am now on a personal mission with my dog to bag a rooster in every county in Iowa, hunting public land exclusively. Love it. Love it. We definitely want to talk about the the uh, the journey, the mission that you're on, which I think if anybody's heard of you, they'll probably be familiar with that. I am a little bit myself. You know, I've done some reading on it. I've been, been casually following along a bit, but one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show was just to kind of get it straight from the source and hear a little bit from you about the challenge. But I want to go back to your, you've been pretty much a lifelong bird hunter. You've born and raised in Iowa, been there your whole life, Nick? Yep. Been there my whole life and grew up pheasant hunting with my dad and brother and uncle Mike mainly. Um, you know, kind of started out like a lot of, I feel like lifelong bird hunters, you know, you follow dad and his friends and family around the field. And then eventually they're gracious enough to give you a BB gun and (laughs) then the 410. And then eventually you're in your first 12 gauge and it goes from there. So, um, (laughs) even though I've been in the field a long time though, I haven't considered myself a student of the pheasant until recently in regards to like habitat and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So even though I've done a lot of hunting as far as like learning about, about the birds themselves, um, um, that's all new. So yeah, we just, dad kind of knew where the birds were and put up, put us on them growing up and we didn't really think otherwise. We just knew we, we had fun bird hunting. I love that aspect of it. Uh, and that was something I picked up on. I just read, there was an article put out on Gundog Magazine written by uh, Chris Ingram. And cool article, just kind of pr- introing you a little bit and talking about the challenge. But that was something I picked up on in the article was, You've been bird hunting a long time. You more recently have become more of a student, as you say, which I would say is very similar, similar to my story. You know, I started grouse hunting when I was very young and, you know, you just, yeah, different, different priorities, different things. You're having fun and that's, that's the most important thing. But as you get, as I got older and got my own bird dogs, that was part of it. And this podcast is also part of it kind of became more of a student and took that deeper dive. So I, I appreciate that. What uh, what was it for you? What what sort of eventually? I mean, you knew you loved bird hunting, but what caught your attention? Was it was it dog related? Was it habitat related? What kind of pulled you in and and made you take a little bit of a deeper dive? Um, I think you know, for me, I had a lot of hobbies growing up. Yeah. Uh, hunting was always kind of a staple, um, but eventually, as you get older, you kind of you phase out of some other things mm. and kind of learn that you only have so much time in life, so you you prioritize a little more. And then of course, um, along came my first personal bird dog. Dad always had dogs growing up. Um, so got a little bit into NAVDA and started doing some training with that and, uh, not to get too deep, but I had an unfortunate situation with the breeder. I decided to go through where I didn't end up getting my AKC paperwork, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So NAVDA was kind of off the table at that point. Um, and so that's when I was just like, you know what, even prior to the 99 county thing, I'm like, you know what? I just, I want to go beyond 
the few places I typically hunt that I know where birds are and just challenge myself and challenge my dog because I, I was to a point in my hunting career where I've shot pheasants and yeah, it's still exciting and fun. Um, but I was to a point where I wanted to challenge myself, like I said, and my dog and not just go out on a weekend and be like, all right, two hours later, I got a couple birds coming mm-hmm. back home. That, that was fun. Um, so that's kind of how it slowly evolved. And just as far as like becoming a student of the pheasant, uh, was just really the dog mainly, and then wanting to challenge both of us and branch out. Yeah, that's really cool. I, th- I think, again, that echoes a lot of whether I realize it or not, that's similar. Just what it was for me, it was when we, my wife and I had our first son and kind of saw the way things were headed with schedule and priorities. And I started to whittle away at some of my other hobbies. And I think when you do that, this is what I hadn't really thought. You kind of have all this mental capacity for those hobbies that you were kind of divvying up between, you know, A, B and C, but then it's, then you got birds left. So all your, all your thoughts and, and stuff year round are kind of directed towards that. I think that has fueled a lot of my, uh, deeper dives in, in the world of upland hunting. So that's pretty cool. And yeah, again, we're going to talk about the challenge. I want to go back to first hunts. Do you have any, what do you have any memories that really stand out from some of your first hunts? Kind of like the spark that lit the fire. Did you take any cracks with the BB gun? Um, so the BB gun was kind of more, <laughs> more like we get back to the truck, put a couple pop cans on the fence post yep. type of deal. Um, and then, uh, I, I I really just learned clay shooting on a 410. We have a family 410 that's been passed down through generations. To be honest, I don't know why I didn't hunt on that much. I just remember dad ended up getting me a youth 12 gauge shotgun. Didn't even go for the 20, just went right in with the 12 gauge. All out. Um, And we were getting into turkey a little bit as well. So I think that was part of it. um, Is he wanted to get me something that was just universal. We didn't have a ton of money. And so just got a little Mossberg pump youth and, uh, just kind of transitioned into that but as far as like memories go we just i just always remember driving around with my dad uncle mike and my brother and uh knocking on farmers doors building relationships and then the goofy stories of things that happen in the field or you know you think a dog gets lost and then all of a sudden you find it you know two hillsides over or whatnot but um you know a lot of it for me is just uh just stories and time with my family and uh driving around we did a lot of hunting in tama iowa which is about an hour from us so i've just spent a lot of time eating waxy donuts on the back roads and trying to find (laughs) birds (laughs) oh that sounds like a blast i'm sure there are plenty of people out there smiling and nodding their heads that is a again familiar story for for many folks it's not the way everybody gets into bird hunting but it's uh it's one way that that folks find it and yeah those memories uh are invaluable well, and I will say that I'm gracious or, you know, lucky enough to have a family yeah. that, uh, you know, has raised me in hunting and provided me with those opportunities to, to be in the field for, you know, as many years as I have. Yeah, that's a head start, really. And uh, one uh, one that I was fortunate to have, too, and, and something to be thankful for, without a doubt. I want to go to, well, okay, talk to me a little bit about Iowa pheasant hunting. And because you've been a lifelong bird hunter what is you had commented on this a little bit and it, you know i'm i'm your neighbor to the north up here in minnesota the listeners will know i haven't done a whole lot of pheasant hunting i've never made it down to hunt in iowa although i would like to but i have picked up on the storyline of iowa pheasant hunting a little bit at least within the last 20 years or so i know there was a there was a pretty big 
peak of, of bird numbers and then perhaps a subsequent, subsequent crash. But I don't know that story all too well. Talk to me about sort of what you've seen in your lifetime and kind of bring us to present day sort of your assessment of pheasant hunting in Iowa. Yeah, so uh, I'll kind of date myself here. I'm 34, was born in 88. Um, prior to my arrival to this earth, we had phenomenal numbers here in Iowa. We're talking 70s, 80s. Okay. Um, we rivaled South Dakota for numbers. I mean, we were killing over a million birds a year in the state in just phenomenal hunting. Now, um, fast forward into the 90s, things start slowly declining. Part of it due to habitat, lack of habitat, reduction of habitat. Part of it was some harsh winters, and the numbers started slowly going downhill. Now, in the 90s and even into the early 2000s, hunting was still pretty dang good. I mean, in the 90s, you'd go out and, you know, flush a couple hundred birds in a day, no problem. Okay. And then that slowly started to wither away. And what I noticed was um, in the early 2000s, crop prices kind of went through the roof and even middle 2000s. And a lot of our farmers were farmer were tilling up all their fence rows that they could, any drainage ways, tiling everything to get max crop produce um, out of their land, right? Yep. So uh, fast forward to 2010, Iowa hits rock bottom as we have seen it pretty much for pheasant numbers and things were looking pretty dire at that time. Now the crop market kind of balanced back out a little bit in my opinion from what I see, you know, not being a farmer, just from outside looking in. And then also through education with Pheasants Forever and a lot of different organizations, seeds, seed uh, distributors, things like that. People are now focusing a lot more on their higher, uh, what do you call it, CRS ground, so the higher, uh, more nutrient, plentiful ground, and trying to get more um, crop out of that, and then taking another area that maybe wasn't so fruitful that maybe, you know, they'd get a little bit out of, and turning that into more CRP. So working with farmers, you know, now Pheasants Forever and all these other organizations are working with farmers locally to kind of have a best of both worlds. So we've seen some drainage ways come back, which when you, when I talk about like drainage ways, just think of like a grass strip out in the middle of a cornfield. Yep. It doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but that's mainly what we would hunt growing up throughout the nineties. And they held so many birds. Um, but our state being mainly 95 to 97% privately owned. If you think about farmers from the East side to the West side of the state, tiling all that stuff and removing all those strips of grass, it actually added up to quite a bit of acres of ground that we lost in habitat for the birds. So we have finally started to get quite a bit of that stuff back. And also um, farmers, a lot of farmers are learning the benefits of no-till farming, which also can just be beneficial for all critters out there to leave a little waste grain and stuff on the ground throughout uh, the winter season to help them get through these tough months. But uh, now to fast forward to today after 2010, we're really seeing quite a bit uh, decent numbers come back. You know, we I'll, I tell people we still don't have pheasants in Iowa. You better go South Dakota. Um, it's a joke. But uh, <laughs> um, we were getting a lot better. I think last year they killed, uh, uh, don't quote me on this, but maybe 300,000 or okay. so. Quite a bit. I mean, we're, we're nowhere near that million. Like right, I think yeah, South so Dakota's down, still down doing from it. a million, but yeah, a healthy number of pheasants there. Yep. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what I've seen. Um, 
through my little bit of research prior to being born and then kind of growing up around it yeah is it was just habitat was a big issue for us and it's always an issue in iowa with us being so privately owned right right yeah yeah that those numbers which i want to maybe touch on again when we when we start talking about your mission at some point but yeah that that kind of jumps out at you when you talk 95 percent private land um, just knowing that that in order to be in order to make significant change for habitat and wildlife you're going to be working very closely with private landowners which again you know that's a the great point where pheasants forever steps in and that i would be familiar with some of that stuff just you know going to pheasant fest and and having conversations with folks from pheasants forever that's a that's a neat um, thing that they're working on as far as like sort of working smarter and not harder exactly maximizing the most efficient ground certainly sounds great in theory and it sounds like it's showing some results on the ground as well it is and also you know i think the biggest thing is just getting a lot of these private landowners to buy in because Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of the pro. It takes a little bit of a process to see, you know, the fruit of the labor. It takes, you know, two to two to three years yep. to see some of these plots fully develop and the grasses to come up and a couple burn cycles. And you know, I, I don't know a ton about that aspect of sure. it, but um, I just know it takes a little bit of nurturing to get things off the ground. And if you can trust the process, you hit that about three four year mark, and you can really see some rewards from all the hard work. It's one of the unique things I think about, you know, upland birds and in all wildlife really, but for the sake of this podcast, you know, a lot of times habitat wildlife populations are influenced by a multitude of factors. And some of the, some of the, those times it is, you know, it's marketplace factors, you know, it's the, the price of crops or the price of timber or something like that. And, and the real world keeps on trucking, right? It, it moves on yep. and, and we learn things and we realize things. And when you kind of look back in hindsight, some of the stuff becomes quite clear, but but one of the common threads, whether you're talking quail or grouse or the landowners are always, it seems like the sentiment is always, they, they value the wildlife. You know, they, they, they place a high priority on wildlife and their most private landowners seem to be very interested in, in helping wildlife. So it's just kind of connecting, connecting those dots on, you know, how can, how can we develop win-wins, which is, is really where a lot of the best conservation comes from but sometimes it takes time like you said time and and new information to connect those dots yeah and sometimes you know it's even literally planting a seed in someone's ear especially Mm -hmm. you know if they have some doubt and continuing to follow up with them which a lot of these great pheasant forever guys do and eventually um yeah we can get through and make some good headway you uh i I know very little about farming but you kind of piqued my curiosity what 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 is no-till farming beyond what i can just immediately envision what's the what are the differences there so essentially and i don't know a ton about it but i do know that pheasants forever is a big push on it and i've talked to a few farmers that i have that are friends basically the concept here is um for a farmer the benefit is is one you completely um remove a rotation from your field as far as having to kill it um, so it gives the farmer more time to do other stuff. And then what you're doing as far as um, with like animals and stuff like that is they'll have that waste grain on the ground that's left over that deer, squirrels, all that can kind of feed on throughout the winter, harsher months. And then also um, there's something, I don't know the scientific and all the 
all the science behind the no-till part, but there's some further benefits to it as far as um, the nutrients in the ground goes. Yeah. Now, I know the old theory was we till it up. You want to get all that stuff churned over and mixed up over. into the dirt. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh, so now I know a lot of guys, they just put nitrogen into the field instead of tilling it mm. and then just plant. And they still do the typical soybean corn crop rotation. So that I, I know just enough to scratch the surface, but that's something that I've been wanting to learn a little bit more on, okay. especially as Pheasants Forever continues to, to push the no-till to farmers. Yeah. Are you going to be at Pheasant Fest this year? I will be. I should be. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's uh, I've been thinking about that. We're, I, we will be there with Upland Gun Company, and I will, uh, I'm looking forward to being there at, in Minnesota, so a little tease preview to Pheasant Fest. But I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I probably reaching out to some pheasants forever contacts here in the near future to maybe preview the show. But, um, uh, some of this stuff I'm, like I said, you've sort of piqued my curiosity. So good conversation for some future episodes. Perhaps we can learn some things from our friends at pheasants forever. Absolutely. They're, I think what do they call their wildlife biologists? Yep. Yep. Indeed. All right. Well, let's transition a little bit into, let's set it up with talking about what you have set out to do accomplish and we'll get up to speed on where you're at. And then we'll kind of look ahead as to how you're going to go about completing this, but let's go to the beginning. What was the spark for, for this? You, you did talk about sort of you, you were a pheasant hunter lifelong and you were just, you were looking for something more. Is that, is that pretty much sum up like the idea for this? How did it come to you? That pretty much was it. It came to me through seeing a lot of other people out there posting their uh, like Arizona Grand Slam. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, or, you know, Montana, whatever. And so I had never at this time, I had never envisioned doing something like that. Um, didn't really know anybody at the time that was willing to travel to like a Montana, Wyoming, any of those States. My dad obviously loves hunting, but he's to a point now at 65. He doesn't really have any interest to climb mountains. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, maybe as I get older, I will go do some of that stuff. But I'm like, for now, what's something, what's, what's some sort of like slam or something I can do within my own state. And so I just got thinking, I'm like, well, yeah, we kind of have a rough grouse season, but we really don't have a rough grouse population. Mm. And we do have some quail, but they're not in every county. And so I was like, well, I, I mean, pheasant hunting is my jam. It's my passion. It's what I love, love hunting other things. But I was like, I, let's try to get 99, 99 pheasants. Don't still yet don't even know if it's possible. I mean, I think it is, but I've talked to some DNR guys here in Iowa and they're like, Oh, there's a few counties that are going to be extremely tough. Okay. Just yep. due to more timber than grassland. They just don't have that habitat. Oh really? The more, more timber, especially like up in that Northeast corner okay. around like Decorah, that's more of the rough grouse area. And if, that's if the, them. technically is part of the driftless region. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Exactly. And we, unfortunately, um, I think there's plans in the work right now, but our DNR um, has, they didn't do anything working with private farmers as far as timber cuts or anything like that to prolong the, you know, the longevity of the rough grouse. Right, and I right. think they've looked to this point and are like, oh man, we messed up. What can we do to try to bring something back? So now some of those um, actually pheasant for every biologist I know are kind of working too mm -hmm. with some of these farmers that have grasslands and timberlands to maybe do some cuts and things like that. So we're slowly getting in the right direction in that regard. Yeah. And I think a mutual friend, Nick Adair of the gun dog at yourself podcast, he recently made a trip there and I think 
he's got some stuff in the works as far as like maybe a little video and kind of talk. I know they were chasing grouse, woodcock, and pheasants, I believe. So I'm kind of he. I was talking to him about that recently and looking forward to seeing some stuff there. But yeah, I. Iowa, very unique landscape. I haven't, that was going to be one of my questions is like, was there, did you have to do any research as like, okay, do we have pheasants in every county? And it sounds like for the most part, yes, but some counties could prove to be a little challenging. I definitely think there's pheasants in every single county. It's a matter of, can we find them on public? Okay. Um, Now I think we could, we could probably get it done, but I may, you know, I may get to 97 and have two left or so, where now I got to kind of turn it into the (laughs) story of, how I built a relationship with the farmer and got access to his land or something. Sure, you know, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I hope not. It would be a, it would be incredible to complete it all in public. I mean, that's the goal and we're going to work right up to the end to do it that way. But right. Yeah. We get to 97 and I'm 65 and a Walker. No, better be done before <laughs> that. But. So spoiler alert, you have not completed the challenge yet. If we didn't give that away yet, that, that was something <laughs> that I thought I thought was cool interesting that I picked up in the Gundog magazine article was again, sort of your, and I want to talk about this kind of your expectations going into it. And now what you've now realized, like what the timeline is going to look like versus what you maybe thought. Well, what's really interesting is I get, uh, you know, as, as you get to do a few more podcasts, a few articles here and there, people have slowly started to kind of figure out what I'm trying to do. And you'll get some people once in a while that'll reach out and just say, Hey, you know, when you get over to this County or whatever, give, give me a holler. We yeah. got pheasants here all the time. And I've taken some people up on that. Um, do most of the hunting myself yet, just cause you know, I hunt at odd times of the week and things. Sure. It just usually doesn't align with other people. But um, the interesting thing is that I learned real quick is yeah, there's a lot of pheasants out there, but there's also, um, a ton of variables that I'm up against. So, you know, someone reach out, Hey, see pheasants all the time in this County. You go over there, hunt that County. Maybe it's super windy that day, or it's really hot and the birds are running. They're not flying. You have all those variables that you're up against. So it's not as easy as sometimes I think people see, cause they're like, Oh yeah, you just go out and shoot a pheasant. Right. Um, so I try, I try to be good about posting the ups and downs. Cause it's not all just go out and shoot a bird. Right. Um, but you know, you're up against the weather conditions every year the habitat's going to change as far as bird numbers did we have a good hatch bad hatch things like that years that we have higher hatches i need to kind of focus on those harder counties and then let alone the dog work and then if the dog does everything right and the bird gets up me as the hunter do i get my gun shouldered correctly can i make the shot can we retrieve <laughs> and then not only make the shot nick as you know sometimes you don't retrieve those birds because mm-hmm. they go down you wing it especially pheasants they right. just seem yep. tough as heck yep and uh so my first year i was like yeah 15 is going to be my goal and i quickly realized like 10 10 is going to be pretty dang reasonable and i hunt i'm lucky with my job that i typically can hunt three to four days a week um if not more on some weeks so i'm out there hunting a ton and then uh, you go oh you're hunting all that much you should be able to shoot 10 pheasants easily well, most of these counties that I'm hunting in, I've never gone to. I've never right. hunted. I've only e-scouted. Sometimes you pull in and they've mowed the field down. If it's like an IHAP, which is Iowa Hunter Access Program, mm-hmm. that's private land that's walk-in for Iowa hunters. Um, and so, yeah, I quickly learned in that first season, like, whoa, this sounds cool. But, like, dude, <laughs> you you literally almost have all of the odds stacked <laughs> And that's what pushes me really at the end of the day is, I mean, there's some days, yeah, you bang your head against the wall, but 
the minute you shoot that bird, you're just like, dude, we're doing it. We're out here doing this. I can see it. Like it, I, I felt like it sort of came through in the interview. Like, you know, it's, it starts with an idea. It's a little spark. You get excited about it. You get that initial motivation. You start putting things together. Then you, attempt to tackle it in year one and you realize whoa there were some things i didn't account for natural right like yeah. you, you can't think of everything but then so you kind of like you got a little uncertainty there but then you sort of find your footing and and now you're you're like reinvested and you're motivated by the challenge like you now have a much clearer picture of how challenging it's going to be and so now you've kind of set your sights on that which i think is i think is cool like this is a this is a you know do some simple math it's like a 10 year 10 year thing you've got going yep and i chucker hunted for the first time this year out did you really and i have always wanted to chucker hunter chucker hunt it's been like a dream hunt of mine yeah and i absolutely loved it Shot one, questionable if I shot it or if Heath Sainer from Hunt Ready got it. We both <laughs> shot the same covey. He was gracious enough to just give it to me, so I took it. Oh, what a guy. But those birds, what I learned about those birds in Slim, Josh Tatman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, was, was very gracious in helping me. I was texting him, like, continually while I'm in the field, like, sending him pictures. Like, is this what you're telling me to look for? Like, is this cheatgrass? And so he was awesome to help us get on some birds. Yeah. But, um thing that i learned about those birds is you can see them you can hear them like i got to a point where i was kind of stalking them like big game i was glassing them on you know seeing them posted up on a cliff wow and then i'm like oh i'm gonna sneak around and get to them and then by the time they get there they're gone yeah and here i am at the top of the mountain and they're down there in the bottom of the valley but they make that little noise they're always making that noise i don't know what it is just taunting you obviously but they're taunting you yes (laughs) and then what but what that does is that just sits there and goes man, they're right there. If I can just get right down there and then you get down there and they're 200 yards ahead of you again. It's like the carrot at the end of the stick. Exactly. And so (laughs) after I did chucker hunting, I'm like, man, that is really, really comparable to what this 99 County thing is like. Um, Cause you go from those moments of complete defeat and then you hear that little sound they make and you're like, Oh no, they're still right there. Let's go. We're in this. (laughs) Um, But needless to say, some in the group, uh, not Heath, but there are others in our group that are like, yeah, sugar hunting's not for me. They didn't like the taunting and (laughs) that just pissed them off. Yeah. I could, uh, I could see how you could, you could go either way on that one. What, what time of year were you out chucker hunting? Uh, That's about middle of October. Okay. All right. So I would imagine that would have been pretty pleasant out in Montana then about 70s it, it got Oof, pretty warm. warm yeah yeah it got pretty warm okay well uh okay so i may have missed this apologies if i did but how many counties have you successfully bagged a rooster in now so right now as of uh season to date i'm at 27 of 99 okay so i shot seven this year and this is your is this your county. third year doing it yep okay. third full season okay all right so you're 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 tra- tracking right along though. You're you're looking pretty good. Yep, yep. I feel good, looking good. The first year I did nine, and then last year I was able to follow up with eleven to get okay. to that twenty. Okay. Um, to kind of even it off again. So it's cool. Yeah, it, it's funny because I go through phases myself, like throughout the season. I was just telling my wife a couple weeks ago. I'm like, oh gosh, feel the pressure. Like yep. I was on track, and now I'm not. I need to get one so that I got one. I'm like, all right, I'm right back in it. Like three more to go before January 10th. We could do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that 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 reminds me of a of something a, a friend relayed to me from another grouse hunting friend of his just sort of the 
kind of the ebbs and flows. And when you get into later season, you know, the, the pressure that weather starts to put on you and we've had some, some kind of wild weather. We had lots of snow and then it melts and we've had some cold temps. And I mean, I would say for me, grouse hunting while the season is still legally open, it's, it's December 27th today. It's effectively over We just had a bad winter storm and we're buried in snow. And I mean, you could go up on your snowshoes, but the dogs would be swimming and I don't know. We got some nice weather ahead. I don't think I will go. But anyways, the point of that being his it was it was in the midst of one of these kind of wonky weather weekends in the late November or December and this guy texted my buddy and just said if people only realize the the stress that grouse season puts on an individual and I I would think the same thing kind of applies there to what you're saying. 100% agreed and I um <laughs> My my dad tells me all the time because I hunt with him quite a bit. He's just like Nick, you put so much pressure on yourself about this ninety nine right, county thing, right. and I and I do. But at the same time, a, a lot of that's what pushes me and motivates me through. Um, but but I've had moments of field where you shoot a bird and you just you know you got a whole group out there working for you. They're there to get you on one rooster and you drop it and can't find it, and then you're just nobody ever says anything to me but like i said i just put all this pressure on myself I'm like oh, i just let everybody down and they took the day off to come hunt and and it's like that i need to try to not focus on that because everybody's out there we're still having fun right nobody feels like i let them down but yeah it's just there's a lot of ups and downs yeah i i hear you and i think i mean i think that many people listening would again sort of nod their heads there it's just uh i don't know when you take something so seriously or so passionately it's just, you find yourself in the where you have those moments where you're kind of caught up in what you're trying to accomplish and or do and you know i think it you're probably never going to be able to avoid that entirely but as long as you can kind of at some point whether it's the end of the day or the next day or the the week you know you you come back take a step back and say hey i'm out here i'm bird hunting i'm having a blast just like you said um you gotta you gotta maintain that balance yeah yep so have you in in the three years now have you had any and maybe we'll just if you've got any noteworthy stories of like memorable birds that stand out to you but like have you had any where you let's say you had one day or a couple hours in a county and you went out and the bird got up and you missed it and then you had to go home like that was like have you had any moments like that uh quite a few quite a few <laughs> um so i told you i've killed seven to ten this year okay if, if i could have landed all my shots i'd be at 12 of 10 right oh now. wow wow so i've hunted probably 15 counties this year yeah and now i haven't missed all those counties some counties you just don't see birds but I haven't had any videos that have come out yet on YouTube, but this next, this off season, I'll have a couple that'll come out and it'll kind of show the progression of how many times throughout multiple years I've gone into a few counties and have missed gun. Didn't do what it was supposed to, you know, like I have a Franke and if you don't have that receiver pushed all the way forward, sometimes it just click. They call it the Benelli click. Uh, so the gun doesn't go off. Oh, you're, this is a semi-auto. Yeah. Semi-auto. Yep, yep, okay. Yep, and, okay. uh, yeah, there there will be a progression on some of these of, of <laughs> how how long it took me to get the birds, but um, that's funny. Two quick stories is um, one I went out and hunted this. I hunted one specific county like three different times, probably more than that, and kept seeing birds, kept getting into birds, but they were pretty pressured and they kept flushing wildly, and. 
um, finally, I was like, you know what? I need to just completely abandon this area and went to a new area that I've hunted before, but it had been like a year and a half since I'd been there and got in to that field and uh, was able to flush a bird. And speaking of Chris Ingram earlier, he just wrote an article recently about hunting birds that you've already flushed once. Oh yeah. I, I and, just flagged that. I haven't read it yet, but I was going to read that. Yeah. So for me personally, and Chris kind of alludes to this is typically it ends in further frustration and most of the time doesn't end in a successful harvest yeah. and continuing to push the birds further from their food source or covey or whatever you may be hurting the birds whatever so um i'm out hunting and i flushed it was miserable cold like we this is just last week and uh i'm like i'm gonna go try to reflush this prior to me even reading this article i'm like i'm gonna go try to reflush this pheasant right and probably won't get it ended up not finding it, but on the way to where it went, I ran into like a pocket of six of them and dropped one. And then, so I started to kind of sit and analyze where that bird came from and where the other one flushed, you know, went to and, um, started learning just, you know, going back to being a student of the mm-hmm. of pheasants. And so now that things have gotten really cold, that isn't something that I've actually got a ton into in the last two seasons because we haven't got really got snow here in iowa till like middle to late january the last two years yeah so now the other day that was kind of just neat for me to kind of see how the birds were using different habitat now that some of these grasses were buried they're more in the thickets uh we don't really have cattails but we got reedy like wet type grasses okay they were in those low-lying areas um so that was just kind of neat for me to to get out and kind of start putting some more pieces together in regards to um, what I'm seeing and trying to stop and in that moment analyze, okay, what just happened? Because I think we can all be guilty of, okay, I, I went out today. My goal was to pheasant hunt. I shot a pheasant. Let's put it in the pouch and walk to the truck or keep hunting the field. Well, if you really want to learn and become a better hunter, what, why do you think that pheasant was there? Stop and look around at what type of grasses it got out of, or maybe you pushed it into mm-hmm. um, or things like that. And so that was just kind of something that was cool for me is just, you know, being in this third season, and truly being a student now for three years in a row to, to put some of these pieces together to make myself a little more successful um, has been pretty fun. Yeah. And then to see it come together with, I think they're in there and then you go over there and they're there. Yeah. Um, it's pretty neat. You close that loop and, and find success. However you define it, that's always a uh, very gratifying. And then there's just a number of last year and this year, I've had a handful of people, you know, successful or not be gracious enough to, to come over and, you know, link up with me and hunt. I had one group of five that came over from uh, Nebraska. They came over, um, whole family actually. And they, uh, they came over and hunted about four hours. So I don't know what they spent on a license. I offered to, you know, let's hunt a couple of days, but that was all they had time for. Yeah. They just wanted to try to help me get a County done. And I just, I just got in my truck at the end of that day and just like, had a big smile on my face. It's like, man, I never thought I would be in a position ever where like one people would care about this. Like I just started posting about it cause I thought it'd be kind of right. neat to just document it somewhere. But two, I was just so uh, gracious of them. Like, man, you, they spent money on an out of state license. They spent gas to drive over here, time and energy away from their families and their job That's so to cool. help me shoot one freaking pheasant. Like <laughs> I was just like, that. that's pretty special, man. So oh. it, it, it's, it's, you've met a lot of neat people throughout, throughout the journey so far. I love it. 
Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. All right, buddy, we're back. We're kicking off the unexpected part two of this interview. I will have addressed this in the intro to the podcast, but thanks for joining me once again this week, uh, two days post our last conversation. And, dude, you just got back to the truck. You got a bird in the bag this morning. Tell me about it. Yeah, so uh been hunting the past couple days. Actually uh, started on Tuesday afternoon, did one end-of-the-day hunt, had a huge rooster about get up at my feet and just just missed him. Uh, Shot behind him, I think. You know, was eating me alive. Do you think? Do you think? Because this ahead. is this is has been uh, on my mind a lot lately. Did you shoot too quick? I shot way too quick. Yeah. Um, I mean that, and and everything felt right. I had the gun mounted. You know, sometimes when you're in thicker clothes, you don't get that gun to the shoulder quite right. And yeah. I had everything mounted. Felt great. Um, and then looking back kind of at the GoPro, I think I was behind it, maybe a little bit even above it. Mm. Um, and then my, my second, third follow-up shots were just, you know, my second, I, after I missed that first one, I should have really waited and made a nice second shot and I probably would have had him. But, it, and then the third one was just like, oh man. Yeah. But sometimes I don't know if you ever do this with grouse and Nick and hunting is sometimes you, it feels so good and you pull that trigger and then the bird keeps going. There's that split second of like, you kind of snap back to reality. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's still flying. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's such and a, then, so you got to yeah. reset real quick and then re-aim. And by that time it's, 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 it's over. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's weird, yeah. weird when that happens because like you're, like you're pointing out sometimes, you know, sometimes you're making a shot where you don't have that feeling, but when everything feels right and you shoot and the bird doesn't fold, yeah, it's like an unsettling surprise. And then you're just, you're totally off at that point. <laughs> It's one of those yeah, funny yeah. things Then you're about trying to hunting. regroup, and then the bird's just gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens to me plenty. Um, yesterday, we hunted all day, and we've had uh, about a 70 to 80-degree temperature swing in the last four to five days. So, so we were crazy. continuing to <laughs> – it was. So we were continuing to hunt like this thick cover, and we didn't see a single bird. Um, we got into one covey of quail early in the morning, and that was it. And then uh, this morning, uh, we learned yesterday – at the end of the day, when we were driving back to the hotel, we were seeing a lot of birds come out of like really thin grass fields, what you'd hunt, like brome grass, warmer weather grasses. We're like, oh my gosh, it's 40 some degrees. They're back in the, the warmer grasses. So that's what we hunted this morning. And there was poop absolutely in roosts all mm-hmm. over this field. Wow. And we only saw six birds, which was kind of surprising for how many roosts we came across and a lot of fresh poop. But uh, yeah, I was very fortunate enough, about 200 yards coming back to the truck. I was able to get one that I'm pretty sure we flushed earlier. We kind of watched him go over the hillside and kind of made a mental mark to loop back towards him. And a uh, nice close fr- flush and 
dropped him with one shot and uh yeah then sent you the text and was like hey got one in the bag whenever you're ready man <laughs> oh i love it that's awesome Another county off the list so that was Ringgold county awesome so what's the uh all right i know i asked you this two days ago but what, what's our total now so now we're up to eight for the season and man if i w- could have nailed that one just two days ago in that last hour hunt uh you know i was just just driving to the hotel and hunting the last hour of the day i could be up to nine and as we talked earlier in the podcast, could be well over my goal of 10 if I could just connect. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, gosh, that's, yeah, that's, that is, that is up on bird hunting for sure. But so, 100%. yeah, so, so you made it, you were in another county two days ago when we were chatting the first time. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Well, that is awesome. Congrats on, congrats on the, on the bird this morning and happy to be talking to you. So that is, isn't that interesting like the change in temperature, you know, I think about that quite a bit when we're mainly when I'm, when we're getting snow and cold temps and you, you start thinking about the birds and naturally you're, you're thinking they're going to react to the weather, which, which they do, but sometimes kind of surprising maybe how quick that happens, right? Like it was a few days ago and it was, we had sub-zero temps or it was at least very cold where you were and now yep. it warms up and you're hunting the previous pattern and here you find out the birds have... No, not surprisingly maybe but you're just it's always when you see it then you then you believe it here the birds have moved into that thinner grass and they're right back at where they were maybe a few weeks ago before it got so cold yeah and for me personally i as far as doing this 99 county thing where i really you know become a student of the pheasant it's i haven't hunted yet where we've had about a 70 degree temperature swing so mm-hmm. this this is truly learning on the spot this year and okay, <laughs> it was that cold and now it's this warm. What are they? Cause yesterday we just kept scratching our heads and hunting with a good friend, Logan and dogs were working good. And we were seeing great signs and old, you know, new roost, but no birds on them, you know, or near them. Right. And it just kept scratching our heads saying, well, where are they? And then with that cold weather, I was kind of thinking, okay, are they just gorging themselves out in the middle of the cut corn and bean fields as well? And that, that could be a small part of it, but you know, uh, we, we found this morning, definitely that warmer weather grass seemed to be the ticket. Yeah. How big of a component is when you're walking new areas and you're mentioning finding roosts and poop? That's something that in the grouse woods I see, you know, I always like when I find a drumming log that's covered in poop. You got a male male bird up there yeah. and that's pretty normal. And it's not unusual to see grouse poop randomly along a road or trail. And, you know, any hunter, you're looking at that and you're paying attention and it's a it's a check in the box or a thumbs up. Is that pretty common for you to to find roosts and pheasant poop scattered throughout covers? You're looking for that pretty regularly? Um, so it's not necessarily something that I'm uh, like targeting per se, but I try to uh, just make a mental note to always kind of look at the ground every, you know, few steps. Okay. Um, especially in when I'm ex- early in the morning when I'm trying to figure out maybe different cover types. So then once I see a roost, I'll just kind of stop for a second and be like, okay, what kind of grass am I in right now? Okay, they were using this and then try to look around to see maybe an idea of the little bit I know about the birds. Okay, what direction from here may they have gone? Okay, corn's that way. Um, And so it's not something I, you know, search for because they're kind of hard to find. I guess Mm -hmm. if you were to walk a field and purposely look for one, you probably would never find one. (laughs) Right. Because you're looking for it, right? Yeah. But just through kind of paying closer attention. And then once you kind of see a few of them, I feel like, feel like it's once you buy a car you start noticing everybody else has that car on the road yeah once you start to kind of notice a few of them and kind of learn the types of habitat that they're typically in you'll start to notice it a little bit more uh, I, I feel as you're kind of walking these pieces and then yeah can you use that as as another tool in your toolbox per se 
to kind of help you work that field, especially yeah. with me. Never, a lot of times, never hunting these fields before, let alone being in the county before. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that answer. That's kind of why I asked the question because I think where it came up for me first was as I've been learning how to hunt sharp tails a bit. And on my September trip, when I go out there, you hear people talk about well, you see roosts and and sharp tail poop on the ground. And I'm kind of looking around at a sea of grass, like how am I going to find a sharp tail <laughs> poop in yeah. this ocean <laughs> yeah. of grass? But it's exactly yeah. like you're saying. You're not. You don't have ninety nine percent of your focus looking for the poop, but it's just it speaks to the power of observation. You're looking around. Eventually, you're going to stumble into it, and then something that I think would be if you see it, and and now I have come across where you've got you know six seven birds roosting all close together i think like at that point taking a step back and looking around like okay what is the topography like what is this cover like what is this spot what about this spot had these birds here and that's where you can you can start to learn stuff but yeah it's just casual observation and again if you see droppings of the animal you're pursuing it's 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 not uh necessarily that you're going to flush one right there but it's never a bad thing to see yeah you know they're using the area and then the other thing too, like you were saying, just stopping and observing, I'm guilty of myself still today is, you know, sometimes we're just, the dogs are going and you're just so hell bent on continuing to push forward. It's yeah. like, you know, stop and look around or, you, you know, you that bird flushes and you miss it and you're just, all of a sudden you're all flustered and you're mad at yourself and the dog did everything right. And then you just keep walking. It's like, well, just, you know, take that as take two minutes or even 90 seconds to just stop and analyze what happened, what went wrong, what went right, what kind of grass were you in? What was the dog doing? And you, you can just learn so much from that, yeah. especially, you know, when you have a dog, that's still, you know, three, four years old, just kind of getting into their prime. You're probably as a working with that dog, unless you send it off for professional training, you know, you're still kind of learning its tendencies. Yeah. It's learning the wild birds too. So you can, you can learn a lot, not only about the bird, but your dog yourself as a hunter, the habitat, I mean, the, the list goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Speaking of sort of tracking and observations, talk to me about, pheasant tracks in the snow like like late season um again i think a little parallel for for grouse season you spend most of the season hunting without snow so you yep. you literally have that component it's, just, it's not a component of the hunt there are no tracks i mean unless you see one in a mud puddle or something but then all of a sudden you get snow and then you've got this new it's it, i always find it really cool you've got this new element to the hunt where you've got tracks all over and then that can kind of send you on you know like we just talked about pheasants moving you know totally changing where they're at based on temperature or weather conditions but you could go into an area daylight see pheasant tracks all over you're all excited but then there's no birds it's just an interesting addition to the hunt when you get to this time of year a hundred percent kind of goes back to those roosts like you're saying even if you don't see birds it can help you one learn how those birds are using that ground two that there are birds in there at some point and then as you start to see more of those tracks in the snow, you can really start to learn and identify what's fresh from a day or older, you know, a couple yep. of days as the sun starts to melt it a little bit. And I have, you know, sometimes you get into those, some fresh powder and you get those fresh tracks and you can kind of start following it and get your dog on it. And you can have some luck that way. And then other times, like you said, yeah, you just don't see anything, but you still know, okay, they were in here at some point. Mm-hmm. So they're around and I don't think pheasants travel very far. So it's like, if you're going to be around for a couple of days, your odds of finding something are probably going to be a little, a little higher if you put in the time and energy to learn that, that space. Yeah. Another, uh, another one of those just little tidbit, little breadcrumbs, I guess would be a better way to put it. That can kind of keep your confidence level up. And as we both know, confidence levels can be pretty fickle when you're out there in the woods with all those elements and all the variables. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And I know that very well after missing that bird a couple of days ago and then grinding all day yesterday, <laughs> we were getting, we looked at each other, scratching our heads at the end of the day at the truck. Like, dude, we, we kind of know a little bit about birds and we didn't even see a hen, like nothing. And, uh, it just, it, it can be perplexing. And it, then you get one today funny, and just, you're uh, like, Oh my gosh, like the roller coaster, you know, it's, it's, it's what makes it what it is, but it's like how quickly you can kind of waver and waffle. <laughs> Well, that, we were talking about that yesterday, walking the field, how turkey hunting, deer hunting, it's an adrenaline rush. Like those, those animals will work in and you can see that play out a little bit, but upland hunting, I mean, it's zero to a hundred right now. Yeah. You know, you're in that sea of grass and you know, you're walking for miles. You're not seeing anything. You may get a little kind of flustered or there's nothing in this field. Let's get to the next one. And before you know it, it flushes and you, let's say you're lucky enough to even get it. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, right? I yeah. love upland hunting again. And you're like, this is why I'm crazy and walk miles for some days no reason yeah it can absolutely turn on a dime and especially yeah you get you get the right like you could walk two miles nothing then all of a sudden you get the right bird contact the right dog work the flush and yeah you're on cloud nine just immediately yeah <laughs> yep yep yeah. which i will say i just honestly i just was watching as i was waiting for my wife to finish up her workout so i could come out here and call you up she i, I was watching your franklin county video from last was like one of your last videos from last year and that was it's a good example of that where you'd had some frustrating moments and one i want to talk about in particular but you hunted it took uh, something like four four trips and six days of hunting to finally bag a bird. And when you bagged the bird, your, the energy level and the excitement was evident that it was a long road to get there. Yeah, hundred percent. And I was rewarded. I have that bird. My dad mounted that bird for me. So I was yeah, rewarded was with year to date, the, the biggest bird I've ever shot. And, uh, you know, I, that's not something I really ever pay attention to or am going for. Um, I know a lot of people want to talk about tail feather links or spur size and whatever. And I'm just out there just, loving the dog work and finding birds period but that that one was pretty special to finally put it all together and wait till the the water froze over to kind of get back into that corner where where they just kept escaping to me on and yeah that that was high energy day <laughs> once i got that one done so the one the one moment in that video i wanted to ask you about was I think maybe from the day before it was a missed bird kind of towards the beginning of the video where you're sort of just walking along i think you might have been narrating to the camera and all of a sudden your your dog was not far in front of you on point. You're like, oh, crap, is she on point? And there was a tree there, and you, yes. were, you were like, oh, crap. And, you know, the disappointment, not disappointment, but unexpectedly finding the dog on the point, you realized you were sort of like caught, and you were like, uh-oh, yeah. what do I do now? Talk me through that a little bit because I've got some parallels to that in, in grouse hunting. Yeah, so um, I had kind of I had kind of known that there might be some birds there because about an hour and a half earlier I saw a bunch of hens feeding in a private bean field that butt right up to public, and I came I went and hunted another piece and I came back an hour and a half later and they were all gone, so I was like, man, that's the only grass kind of next to it. It was late morning, about ten forty five, you know, eleven fifteen ish, and I was like, I'm just gonna kind of beeline right in towards where these corners come together and hope they're kind of tucked back in there. It was cold, snowy, and uh, wasn't wasn't really expecting much and if anything i was expecting to see a couple hens and then i wasn't really paying attention because i was only a couple hundred yards off the road and yeah all of a sudden she just locks up at the base of that tree and that i i might have even verbally said it in the video i was like crap like yep. what wh what do i do now <laughs> you said it twice <laughs> and only and only because um part of it was i had hunted that county so hard and i was like here's your chance don't mess it up mm, yeah 
and then so I had, you know, do you make that decision? Do you go left or right? Or how yeah. do you go around that tree? And, and I might have had that bird, but looking back at that footage, I was wondering, um, it's kind of hard to tell, but I shot very fast and it almost looks like I shot as the bird was crossing behind a big branch of the tree. Yeah. yeah so if was, I would have once again waited a little. Yeah. yeah. So if I would have waited a couple more seconds, maybe we could have had a different outcome. But yeah. Um, yeah, that I, that's one I won't forget because I just verbally was like, oh. <laughs> um, but okay, so yeah, I I love those moments, and they happen they happen often. And again, part of it is just sort of the unpredictable nature of it all. But the cool thing about the GoPro, and I've learned this from wearing it myself, that's sort of that self talk. You can kind of you get you get a sense of like where you're at in the moment. And I'm doing the same thing, you know. I'm I'm like yeah. incessantly talking to myself on, on the GoPro. It's it's funny. But you just because you're you're totally breaking down, so you've got a dog on point. You've got like an established reference point, and like, is there something? Was there something about the dog's positioning and your positioning that also made you say, "Oh crap!" Like, like, what's the ideal scenario? Uh, is there just you sort of like were surprised to see the dog on point there? Um. So in that particular situation, if I kind of recall, she was she was kind of pointing at the base of the tree, but she was to the left of the tree. Mm-hmm. And you were behind her, so you're naturally thinking the bird is on the other side of her. So you're you're one hundred percent. You're further away from the bird at this point, and you're but you're close. This is like I'm I'm assuming here. You're close, so you're you're thinking this bird could get up at any second. So you're like, what do I do, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then and then so that's well then you know thinking back, it's like you know do you stand there and release the dog and try to stand further back. Yeah, all that stuff's playing through your head. And then, of course, it all plays out differently than what you expected. I The bird went the opposite direction. Right. And it was – and then I wonder, too, sometimes, you know, when those dogs go on point, I, I've actually seen this on wild birds, is that is sometimes that dog's so close, they lock eyes with each other. So that dog's looking to the right, but then sometimes that rooster might take three or four steps, you know, the opposite direction. The dog's looking, per se. So naturally you think that bird might flush right based on the way the dog's mm-hmm. looking and then it kind of just squeaks over and then all of a sudden it's flushing, you know, right to left instead of left to right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's not what I expected based on the dog's positioning. Yeah, that's I, I love that stuff. And again, you, you just you do it enough, you're gonna have you're gonna have examples where it plays out perfectly, and then you're gonna have examples where it it plays out completely the opposite, right? That that, that is yep. that is the unpredictable nature of it. But it sounds like I mean, you're I don't know if it's like this for everybody, but you and I at least like you're. I'm just constantly analyzing, you know, because it's in it's intel. Like the dogs, the dogs on point. It's looking a certain direction. I'm looking at the cover. What? How do I think this is going to play out? I mean, I I couldn't turn that off if I wanted to. <laughs> so you're just you're just yeah. doing that, and then. It, it plays out a certain way and then immediately you're going to say, oh yeah, I, you know, I had that figured out or geez, what could I have done? What could I have done differently? I mean, I, I like that part of upland hunting. Well, and then you and I take it, you know, we, we care about it and we're serious enough about it. Not serious that we're not out there having fun because we love what we do. Right. But I think that's part of it too, is when you care and you're serious and you invest in your dogs and your time and your hunting, you want to improve. You know, obviously you're passionate about it. You want yeah. to improve. Yeah. Where like my dad, and there's nothing wrong with this, but he's to a point, he's hunted most of his life and he shot plenty of birds where now he's like, he's like, yeah, Nick, I'll go hunt with you. But he's just kind of out for the walk. He's just going for he's a like, walk. I just yeah. want to see you shoot birds. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And maybe that's evolution of, of the bird hunter that, you know, that's been talked about plenty. And, you know, there are, there are days that I probably envy that, 
approach, you know, where I'm, I'm yeah, too, too in my head, but um, yep. yeah, it's, it's the, the process improvement and trying to find success in the way that you want to find it that day. That's, that's all part of it. Uh, yeah. that, that's cool. I wanted to get your take on, on that little moment in, on that hunt. Cause I've had, had plenty of those myself, but well, yeah, and I appreciate you checking out a couple of the videos. Absolutely, kind of fun. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't doctor them up or anything. They're pretty raw. <laughs> well, yeah, it, I mean, it definitely is. It's something I'm interested in because I've, I've been running the GoPro, and, and we won't spend a ton of time talking about this. I might have some questions for you on the side, but you know, I'm capturing the footage mainly just to have it because it's, I've got the GoPro set up where it's kind of a pain sometimes, but it's, I made it as little of an inconvenience as I needed it to be to actually use it all the time. So, and that for me was the ticket to just at least get out, get it out there and capture it. I have no idea. I mean, I've shared some of the stuff, but not all of it. And I would like to probably get into putting some videos together and some clips and specifically around kind of like moments, like we just talked about, like I enjoy putting some together where a scenario plays out and then kind of walking through that and talking to it with somebody else and getting their thoughts on it. That's the kind of stuff that I enjoy. So I thought that was, that was cool. And yeah, it doesn't have to be a lot, but just seeing other people go through hunts with their dogs and, and how do they think about it? How do they approach things? I kind of find that interesting. And so, yeah, you've been, the way you do it is you capture the footage and then you sort of put videos up in the off season. Is that correct? Yeah, so kind of right after, I, I usually start towards the end of January, first week of February, right, as we kind of start to go through those yep. lose of no more bird hunting for a lot <laughs> of us in many states. Yep. Um, we can kind of sit back and relive some memories through through some different hunts and stuff. So it's kind of been a fun way to do it. I know a lot of people kind of get anxious and be like, oh, you know, we want to see the footage of the bird you just shot today or whatever. And it's like, it, it'll get there. Right. Yep. <laughs> and then, too, like, you know, with Franklin and some of these other counties, I've hunted some of them a few times. So then it's kind of, it's kind of just fun to show the element of, you know, Hey, I don't go out and just shoot a bird every time I go out. Cause I right. get that comment once in a while. People be like, Oh my gosh, you find birds everywhere. And it's like, well, one, you got to remember, I'm just trying to shoot one. So that might've been the only bird I saw all day. Yep. It doesn't necessarily mean that County's good per se. Um, and, the, and then you just got the element of luck and all that too. Yep. Yeah. What GoPro are you running? So I, uh, I actually run the GoPro four Okay. and I have a hero eight. And I need to mess with the settings a little more, but the Hero 8 battery life doesn't last as long on my 4. And I think that's most likely just because the video quality is a little better. Yep. And so I run the 4. It seems pretty well. You know, the footage seems pretty good. It'd be nice to maybe eventually, like, get a shot cam element added to it. Yeah. But I know those are pretty pricey. Um, but that would be kind of another cool element to eventually add. But, yeah, I just run a old-school GoPro Hero 4. Yeah. Well, okay, so I will. I will offer some a couple tips here that I've, that I've figured out and I've been asked this a lot by listeners. So that's why I'm going to share here. But the, the first one I had was the four and that one, it's a, it's a good camera, but it does, it lacks the motion stabilization. And for me, you, you've got an eight, the eight does have motion stabilization that makes a insane difference in the quality of footage that you get. But the battery life, as you suggested is, uh, it, it's, it's a pain, you know, no, like, again, that's one of those things where if you have to be swapping batteries, taking the camera off your head, it starts to detract from the hunt very quickly. So one of the hurdles that I was able to get over in that regard was a tip from actually somebody that I'm going to be interviewing next week, uh, Dave Lassard of the under 40 yards YouTube channel. If you've seen yeah. any of his videos, yep. he yep. told me about 
that he just runs a cord from his GoPro into a battery pack, a little like anchor battery pack yep. that he carries in his bird vest and he gets all day battery from it. Well, I have now done that for, I don't know if it's two or three years now. I think it might be, might be, this might've been my third season running the GoPro and I run a battery pack and I've got it set up now where I run the cord kind of through the hat. It's very out of the way. It very rarely, if ever gets caught in anything in the woods. And so I've got all day battery and I'm running a GoPro 10. And again, that motion stabilization for me, it takes the footage from being okay to like really, really good. You get a lot better shot. So if that's something you're interested in, you should, I would highly recommend trying a battery pack and just, and one of those battery packs costs less than an extra GoPro battery. So you you don't need even more than one GoPro battery. You just get the anchor battery pack and because we have a bird vest and we don't need, we're not like that minimalist where you, you can't yeah. carry, carry any gear. You can just run the thing all day. Yeah. I'll have to pick your brain a little bit after the podcast or shoot yeah. you a message and just, cause it sounds like you got a nice long cord on there. Cause I've looked at some of the battery packs once in a while, but it seems like some of them have such a short cord. I was like, okay, how do you get around that part Yeah, without having to mount it to your hat where you got that big heavy, it's not that heavy, but you know, clip to the back of your hat. Yes. Yeah. And that's what camera on the front. Yeah. So Dave, Dave ran the battery pack on his hat and right away I was kind of like, nah, I don't want to do that. Um, I want to minimize what's up again, trying to keep the experience as clean as possible. So I, I did a, I found like a little 90 degree. It's a, you can get a 90 degree USB cable. So I'll, I'll send you pictures of it. And I've, like I said, I've, I've asked, or many listeners have asked about this and I've got some links to the stuff, but the cord runs through the hat down through the back of my final rise vest where the battery pack sits right sort of inside one of the pockets near the bird bag. And I mean, you don't even know it's there. So yeah, I'll, uh, we could, we could talk through that. Sweet. All right. Well, before we wrap this up, one thing I did want to talk to you about briefly was this, and it's come up throughout this conversation. One thing that I think that is going to like be really beneficial for you and continue to pay dividends for years to come is this whole idea that you're hunting 99 counties, which means that at least 99 times you're stepping outside your comfort zone, hitting a new area, trying to find cover to hunt, having to go through all of these unknowns as a pheasant hunter and like find cover to hunt. So I want you to talk me through your scouting process a little bit, how you find places to hunt and what you're looking for. And then kind of, we'll get into a little bit like what you've learned by, again, not just going to your local covers every day. You're, you're forcing yourself to hunt all these new areas. And I think that's one of the things that, that really can make you a better bird hunter. Yeah. Um, so kind of the biggest way that I, um, do my scouting is, you know, 95% of it, I would say starts on Onyx. Yep. Iowa does have a phenomenal online Atlas, digital Atlas. Um, very, very user-friendly, very informative, um, have gotten a lot of great feedback from people from out of state. Cause I get a lot of out of state people that will reach out to me. They just kind of sure. see the channel and go, Oh, that guy must know about pheasants. So let me pick his brain a little bit, <laughs> yep. which I don't mind. I love talking birds and can talk birds all day. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I'll kind of start by uh, basically how I do it is really, okay, I get on Google Maps and I type in the county I want to go to. And then, so you can just type in Lynn County, Iowa on Google, and it'll actually put a red and white like border around that county. Okay. So then I find the city that 
the city that's most central within that county. Is that in Onyx? In Onyx, you're talking, or in the Atlas? I do this on Google Maps. Oh, Google Maps. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I've I've done that where it highlights the county. Yep. Yep. So I do this on Google Maps, and you can look up counties on Onyx, but it doesn't put the big square up. Right. So then on Google, so I just use Google to do that to find what town is most central within the middle of that county. Okay. Then I get on Onyx, look up that town, and use that as kind of the central point. I might not stay there, but as I'm e-scouting. Now I just start to go 360 around that town and I just start to say, okay, if I'm focusing on this county, I'm starting in, you know, this town and let's start to look around it. And you may have a variety of habitats, the walk-in, private walk-in ground, Iowa DNR ground, United States Fish and Wildlife within, you know, that county. So then I'm start, then I start looking at different things like, okay, how much ag is around these fields? Onyx has a great United States crop layer, Mm -hmm. which is pretty accurate. Um, it can be a little cumbersome if you're trying to look for new hunting spots and look for those green dots and stuff on your map. I would turn the crop layer off. And then once you get all your pins placed out to possible hunting places, turn that crop layer back on. That way it's That's a little a easier tip. to kind of pick the crops. Because yeah. when you have when you zoom out and you have all those crops on, it's nearly impossible to see the hunting zones. Yep. Kind of. Um, and so then I start, I put all my pins down on possible places that might have grass and habitat for pheasants. I'll put a pheasant icon down if it looks good for pheasant. It'll just be a red X if it just is like drive by that and see if it's, you know, it might have timber with a little bit of grass in it. It's like, so like drive by and see if it's even worth walking when you're in the area. And then um, from that point, it's a matter of just kind of picking a, an A, B, and a C or a D and kind of picking the plan for the day on how you want to hit them. And I usually try to rotate in a circle. But once in a while, you'll run into other hunters, so that's why I always try to have at least even a C and a D option, because sure. there's some days where you're, you're on that third field and there's another truck there, um, or you know, you're know you in a county that's just, just getting hit hard for whatever reason. So that, And then I get in and start walking it, and then just start making notes in my app in regards to what I'm seeing and, and kind of go from there. So that's kind of the overall scouting process. Yep. I do a little bit back and forth between Onyx and Google Maps. Onyx now has the 3D layer, which is pretty handy. Um, but this is no knock against Onyx. Google's just a, what, multi-billion dollar corporation. So their satellite imagery is a little crisper and I think a little more up to date than Onyx. So, um, one thing I will do is once I've e-scouted it on Onyx is not always, but sometimes I'll pull it up on Google and just double check it and be like, okay, is anything drastic changed? Um, what's it look like, you know, now per se compared to whenever Onyx was on there. What types of things are you looking for on satellite imagery? Um, so really I don't do a lot of like topography stuff until I'm there. So Mm -hmm. I'm really looking for more like grass type lands, um, and things like that. Now I have like a weird hobby that when I get, sometimes I'll get bored. I like to watch videos on YouTube about like abandoned buildings and stuff, like people touring through them. Sure. And so then I'll be like, and they never tell you where they're at. Right. So then I get on Google maps and I'll start to like try to do some research and I, I don't know if you call it globe trotting or what, but I've gotten really good at, at reading satellite imagery from doing a lot of that. And then getting into hunting, when you look at maps all the time, and then you get boots on the ground, you can really start to kind of, so it's kind of hard to explain like what I'm looking for on the map, but once you start to do it a little more, you can start to kind of learn not specific grass types, but you can tell if that area is going to be really wet. It's like a low lying area or, you know, it's just big hilly grass. Um, I think they call that treasure hunting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, and that's kind of where it started like you're, when I was a lot younger I would just watch these videos and be like, where is that so then I just get on maps and start zooming into different woods and try to find these overgrown buildings and 
just I don't know that helped a lot. I I think so that's there's the unique thing I have. Yeah, I re- I like that you point that out, and I uh, it's it resonates with me. There's probably I don't know it, and I I can't come. There's probably a a term. It just feels like there's probably a term for like learning, not hands on, but like you spend enough time looking at something and you get a you get a foundation or a sense for it and then you can go apply that but that's really how satellite imagery works for me too it's you look at the satellite imagery it doesn't really mean anything but then you go out and hunt you see what that looks like the next time you're back at your computer you can copy and paste that elsewhere and then you kind of know what you're going to find and the more you do that the better your sense gets for it i totally understand and i'm sure many people out there are again understanding that because they've experienced it themselves that's that's kind of how you learn yeah and that is a question that i do get asked from time to time is well how do you e-scout as far as like looking at the maps and what do you look at it it really is kind of like you said it's it's meaningless to a point i mean it points you in the right direction it gets your boots on the ground you drive the truck there but then until you get there you start to put that all together and then down the road you'll start to learn when you see that picture again on the, you know, that type of grass or whatever yep. will come up on the map again. You're like, okay, I already know that's a crappy pothole that's yes. wet and going to trip me. I'm just going to go to the other spot that's right next door. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's kind of like, it really highlights. It's like the best example of the symbiotic relationship between e-scouting and boots on the ground. Like one doesn't, doesn't work without the other, but using them together, the sum is greater than the, the parts is essentially I'm, I'm blanking on that saying a little bit, but you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's, and there's no, there's definitely a learning curve to it. And it's just, yep. it's like you said, it's just getting out and walking and putting the miles on. Unfortunately, there's no shortcut to it. Yeah. All right. So give me the, as somebody that is on this mission to 99 counties, you got to drop into a bunch of unknown areas. What are, what's like the ABC or the one, two, three of a spot that you find e-scouting and, and look at, drive by and look at it. What are you looking for? Distill it down for, Hey, I think I can go in here. And again, you're not trying to find a hundred pheasants. You would love to, but you want to, you want to, you want to find one rooster that you can potentially put in the bag. What are you looking for that says, yeah, I'm going to go for a walk here. Uh, so the biggest things for me is there's got to be a food source nearby. Okay. Um, I'm a big bean and cornfield guy. I know there's a lot of other people that say there's different types of berries or things or, you know, stuff that these pheasants will munch on in the fields. I I agree. I think if there's a bunch of snow and they're desperate, they will eat those things or maybe when they're a little younger. But pheasants want to be out in those open grain fields if there's no corn and crops. So that's the first thing I'm looking for. Once I find that next to the field, that looks nice. The next thing I'm analyzing is what's the lay of the land. Is it just a big flat rectangle? If that's the case, maybe I kind of want to work with some more of those edges around those crop fields, depending on the time of day, if it's morning and they're getting up and probably working their way towards the food source, probably kind of work some more of those edges. Afternoon might kind of more head for the middle, try to find some loafing around if it's just a flat area. If we got some rolling hills and draws, things like that, I really like to just dive right into those draws and those fingers. Mm. And I find a lot of birds in there. Um, I think a lot of, especially early on in the season, you get a lot of warm weather, fair weather hunters that for lack of better terms are just lazy and they want to walk the border. Um, so I do think that on public land, there's a lot of birds that get pushed to the middle because mm. guys get out of their truck. They walk these edges and they get back in their truck and go, Oh, I didn't see any birds. 
and so working some of those draws and things like that gets you in the middle and gets you into some of those areas. And sometimes they're a little thicker and people don't want to walk that, get in that stuff. Um, but unfortunately, or, or fortunately, if you're willing to get in there, that's right. where the birds are, especially this, this time of year when they've been pressured, they know where their escape routes are. So I want to find, I want to find food. Then I like, I like to find, you know, good habitat and diversity. And then another thing, um, you know, if, if the edges and the draws aren't really working, working for me, then I'll kind of transition to, um, kind of some of that like transitional cover where you got some tall blue stem that comes up to maybe some shorter grass. And it seems like they really like to hang out on those types, those, uh, edges of cover. Yep. I don't know if they can escape easier or what it is. They can see better and then just kind of go from there. And, and water does help, you know, if a place is corn crops, beans on a couple sides and it has a crick going through it even if it's dried up uh, a little timber line something like that it just seems like it really it really helps and benefits so those are kind of the key things i'm looking at is is made you know food source nearby um next to some decent cover with some variety and uh if it's got water on top of that i think i think it's it's only going to help you and then from there it's just getting boots on the ground and and trying to figure out that day that type of weather yep. you know temperature all that stuff okay how are the birds using the this ground today yeah. Awesome. Which, which that part of it can be very complex and there's lots of variables there, but again, coming back to those core things that you're looking for, I think that's, that's helpful to anybody out there trying to go put a pheasant in the bag. So great stuff, buddy. Uh, I won't take up any more of your time today. I know you are going to get back in the field and I don't want to take any more daylight away from you. I want to thank you very much for for giving us some time this week on multiple days it was really cool to kind of talk to you in real time uh on one of your hunting trips here so that's been a blast where can people go to check out more of your journey and the stuff that iowa bird chasers putting out there yeah so i post most of my stuff on iowa bird chaser instagram and then as we kind of mentioned and alluded to earlier throughout the season and year round you know obviously summer slows down a little bit doing some other hobbies and letting the dogs rest but uh Instagram's the big place and then on YouTube in the off season I'll post some videos and this summer I want to do some more like scouting type videos and stuff because I get asked a lot of questions sure. about that like I was saying from out of state people just kind of as we were talking on the podcast do some videos on how I use the different maps and in that to uh to point me in the right direction so YouTube and Instagram Iowa Bird Chaser follow along on the journey it's, yeah it's lots of ups and downs and we try to we try to be pretty forward with you know the ups and the downs it's not just all tailgate pictures and roosters yeah i know from experience how that that can be challenging because when i like again when i'm recording i'm not necessarily recording it to publish a video or anything so yeah when i when i miss the bird or it doesn't work out like i have a tendency to <laughs> delete that like i just i don't need that in the memory bank but um <laughs> i've actually tried to get better about that like improving my and it's really a it's a technical thing improving my storage situation on the back end like just sort of grab everything and and if i ever decide to do anything with it it's there so i'm i'm working on that but uh, i appreciate that it's, it's always fun to see the ups and downs and everybody can relate to that so it's very cool and last thing i'll say too is something that you noted in the article in gundog mag was just by sort of putting this out there like the 99 counties and you kind of inspired other people and it and it it immediately got my brain turning like oh how many counties have i have i shot grouse in like how many could i how many could i do and sinking like that i know you've heard from a lot of other people that are like kind of taking this challenge and saying how how could i incorporate something like this into my bird hunting well and i think it's great just to challenge yourself as a hunter period right because yeah. we all have a goal to enter the field and get birds 
but beyond that, what, what else are you doing? You know, are you challenging yourself? Are you pushing your dog? That was one thing of this 99 County thing is yep. not only, you know, I wanted to challenge myself, but it was like, what can my dog do? Can, can we do this? Is yeah. this accomplishable? So yeah, you can grow and learn a lot. Yep. Yep. I think that's a, that's a great takeaway for me. And again, stepping out of your comfort zone and doing something like this. And it's, it, yeah, it's not about stacking a pile of birds as high as can be. It's just getting a bird in different counties. I really, really like that aspect of uh challenge i think that's a i think that's a really cool thing to incorporate into your hunt so i'm uh i'm following along man i i think it's great keep up the great work and obviously you're having you're having fun do it through the highs and the lows and it's it's fun to watch so thanks for your time hang on here for just a second and we will catch everybody on the next episode of the bird shop podcast all right appreciate you having me nick appreciate your time as well Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.